The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful that you have given us a time here now to gather to sing to you, to pray to you, and now to listen to you teach us. So Lord, now open your word to us and open our minds to it and use it now to build up your church, your people. Please, Lord, give us hope from this passage and draw out from our hearts worship and rejoicing that testifies to the world about something that is real and good and coming. We thank you, Lord. We trust this time to you and ask you to use it. Build your church. Thank you. Amen. Do I need to turn off something up here? It's ringing. Good. You head to the beach with your friends for the very first time. All of you 10-year-olds with your shovels and pails in hand, intent on building the biggest sandcastle ever. It is going to be epic. And before long, you found just the perfect spot. The sand's nice and wet. It packs really well, and the work is well underway. You've got the walls going up, and the towers are taking shape. And then suddenly, one of those abnormally large waves, you know, the ones that they break way out there, but they just kind of run much further up the shore than is expected. And the very, 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 very tip of that last big wave just kind of comes up and just touches the wall and takes a little piece out of it. No problem, you fix it. But now a moat gets added into the design to catch the next unexpectedly big wave. Ten minutes later, it does its job. But eight minutes after that, you realize you need to dig the moat a little bit deeper. And six minutes after that, you realize that you have a problem. You either need to figure out how to hold back the ocean, or you should have built further up the shore where the waves can't touch it. Of course, we all figure this out pretty quickly when it comes to playing in the sand. But it's a little more difficult to see sometimes those same principles at work in the other areas of life, the, the rest of the places and times we live in. We live here, we build, we enjoy what there is, what's provided for us, and then comes one of those abnormally large waves and it touches us and takes out just a piece. And in goes a moat. Better health insurance and an exercise plan to protect, to guard our health and we hire a financial advisor to guard our wealth. And then another wave comes. That's normal life here for all of us. The tide is coming in on us. And everything here is going to wash away. For all people, that's true. And then on top of that, we who are Christians we have something else that I think we need to consider. Something else was introduced for us by the Apostle Peter last week in his introduction to this book, 1 Peter. 
In chapter 1, verse 1, he called us elect exiles. We who are Christians are elect exiles, chosen by God, elect, yes, and because of that, exiles here in the world, strangers, outcasts. We are people who, like all people, face the tide coming in. We age, we get sick, we live in a fallen world with calamity, and in the end we all die, that's all of us. And then we, who are Christians as exiles, as estranged outcasts in the world, we face something else here, but an additional reality that perhaps we in America are now becoming a little bit more familiar with. As foreigners here in the land, we may discover that we are officially disenfranchised at some point. What we thought we had, we've lost. It's been undermined. The standing we thought we were, were firm in has been kind of washed out underneath, and, and things change for us. We touched, about, touched on this last week, and who knows what the future holds. I, I certainly don't. But we should be sober-minded about this. And we should be hope-filled and Christ-honoring because of what today's passage says. Our true home is built further up the shore where the waves can't touch it. Built not by us, but built by God who made us for this, who gives it to us, and who guards it and guards us for it, guaranteeing that we get it. That's the hope that's in this passage today. We're going to see it here in verses 1 to 3 in 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 to get the flow, kind of 1 through 5. We're going to be focusing on verses 3 to 5. And I'll ask again if I need to turn something down. I'm getting a bunch of feedback here. Do I? No? Okay. (laughs) Okay, so let me read the passage, verses uh, 1, verses 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 5. Beginning verse 3, there are two observations I'm going to make, and here's the first. God has secured for us a living hope in heaven. God has secured for us a living hope in heaven. Our passage, verses 3 to 5, is really just one single long sentence which begins with the idea of blessing God, which is not exactly a command to bless him or to praise his name. It's more of 
of a statement about why God is praiseworthy. The implication, of course, would be that we should praise him. We should bless his name. But more than that, it's something here that we should just know and rest in and be encouraged by and, and kind of build our lives upon as we see in this passage the character and the action of God for us. But before we get to what he's done, we have to notice a little bit about how he's described. He is the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. All that we're going to see here in this passage is really good, really encouraging. It's, it's about hope and it's sweet, very desirable, and it is also very clearly centered on and available only through Jesus the Lord. This Jesus of the Bible. We, we need to kind of be clear on that. He's, he's speaking here about what God has done for Christians. And of course, the standing invitation is always open. Come. If you find yourself weary and heavy laden, and you find, I want some of this, Jesus says, come to me. But of course, we've got to come to the real Jesus, the one in the Bible, and we've got to come to him as he invites us to come, humble and repentant, casting ourselves on him and saying, Lord, I'm yours you're the Lord. Come and find him. Because what we find here is only available in Jesus. It's the God of our Lord Jesus who has acted, done something, according to his great mercy. Because he is greatly abundantly merciful by nature. Notice this is not just a merciful act, it's because he's merciful. He's a heart that is gentle and lowly and compassionate. And it drove him to do something. His nature did. He caused us to be born again. Referring, of course, to spiritual birth. He caused... the. This made it happen. He himself made it happen. We didn't do it for ourselves any more than any physical baby causes themselves to be born. It decides to be born and then makes it happen. We don't do that as babies. It's on the other side. It's on the parent side. And here's the father who caused our spiritual birth. And he did it, end of the verse, through the resurrection of Jesus. Kind of understand that. Put your mind in Romans chapter 6 if you know that place in the Bible. The Apostle Paul there talks about how we are, by, by God's spiritual supernatural work, we are, we are joined to Jesus. We've, we've often talked about like air inside of a balloon, such that we're put inside of Jesus, that wherever Jesus goes, we go with him. Where Jesus is, the Father put us into the Son, joined us to him, that word often used is united us to him. And Paul there talks about how when Jesus then went into the grave, we went with him and we died, and we were then raised out of the grave, raised with Jesus. It's Paul in Romans 6, and the same thing is here too. This is similar to Romans. We were raised back to new life, born again, because the Father put us in, joined us to the Son. But it's different than Romans in this way. Paul in Romans is thinking about some this life implication of that. Raised to new life in Jesus, born again to new life so that we can walk in newness of life. Well, Peter is not thinking about this life, he's thinking about the next. 
raised or born again to a living hope. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. What God has done for us, his elect, is this. He has caused us to be born again as his children, spiritually speaking, which gives us a great inheritance, which makes us heirs of a living hope that is in heaven. A living hope. A hope that's alive, that is real, full, active, effective, relevant. A hope that's valid and and true. It's, It's not just a wish, it's not a dream, it's a fact, and a sweet one at that. A hope that that doesn't ever die, that doesn't ever fail, that doesn't ever pass away, it's promised to us but not yet attained, and it won't be yet, not until we get to heaven. So what is this inheritance, this living hope that he's talking about here? Well, in a real sense, as the scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and the heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So in a real sense, it is fair to say this is beyond us. I don't know exactly. But in another sense, we can read some clues. We can... Look at how we are and what we are, how we're made, what we long for, what we hope in now but find that the fallen world ruins or washes away too soon, what we find that we long for but our sin taints, and what we trust in but we get twisted and corrupted, and the good that resonates in us but yet can't quite last or never really gets deep enough or wide enough and so it ends up light and trivial and is blown away by the wind or shrivels up in the sun. We can look at those kinds of clues in our constitution and in our hearts and minds and we can kind of make some guesses, some observations. We've all had moments when we stand, you've been there, where you stand in a place and you can feel the moisture in the air and you can smell the rain. Or you can see the little particles of dust kind of dancing in the sunbeam that is just so nice and warm on your back. Perfectly warm. And you've walked and you've heard the crisp crunch of leaves beneath your feet. And you can almost feel sometimes the the gently falling snow in its hush. Maybe you've been outside and you've seen a a V of geese fly over and you hear them. You see the the sunset or you hear the the waves lapping against the the shore and, and you just say, ah. And almost instinctively, what rises out of your mouth, you hear yourself saying it before you actually speak it. This is glorious. I hope it never ends. But it does. 
and then it turns and the moisture becomes oppressive humidity and the rain a destructive flood or the rain leaves altogether in place of drought under a beating sun. The creation is full and alive and cursed and dangerous. This is almost a marvelous place. Almost. And in this place, the, the pinnacle of the creation, people, men and women made in the image of God. We've all sensed the beauty and the wonder of human beings, people who laugh and love and encourage you that, that you that you play with and you have fun with, that you just are, are built up with, you, you delight in their teammates and co-workers and then little babies so precious and friends and parents. The moments of being with those people, of, of together with them when you are just, you, you get them and they get you and it is communion, it is fellowship, it is friendship, it is, it is love. People are wonders. And people are wrecks. We all know that too. In all the atrocious ways that make the news and all the deceptive ways that don't. And in all the small, incidental, but equally real moments of sin and brokenness and weakness and pride and selfishness that teach all of us over the course of a life to be just a little bit on guard against everyone else. We are people made to live in a place with people enjoying the image and the handiwork of God in both. That's what God aimed to give Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's what God aimed to give Israel in the promised land. But tragedy, all of it broke, defiled by sin, and it faded away. And that's still the story of life today for all of us. Our hope, all of it here on earth, perishes, is defiled, and fades. We can touch the beauty for just a moment. And you've done it, and you've held it, and you've seen it. Glory. You can touch it for just a moment, and then it's gone, and you can't get it back. We try to revisit the places, and we try to recreate the moments, but as it's been said, you can never step in the same river twice because it all flows by, and it all leaves. Sin and fallenness and brokenness is real. Time passes, and it all falls apart. The tide comes in. In the end, we all die. The story of the world often has a real upbeat soundtrack, but in the end, it's a tragedy. And that grieves the heart of our God, who is a God of great mercy. His great, great 
merciful heart, gentle and lowly and compassionate. His heart moved him to act. To act for us, his beloved ones. He saw our predicament. He saw this reality. He saw us placed in the garden and saw the garden die. He saw us placed in the land and saw the land wither. He saw us placed around people and saw them curse us. And he looked at that and said, I want to fix that. And his own heart moved him to do something about that, to act. He moved himself to cause us to be born again to a different sort of hope than anything we could find here. He put us in Christ and defeated in Christ death and raised us in Christ back up to a living hope to an inheritance that will not ever perish that can't ever be defiled and that will never fade away and never shrivel up this is glory life with a people lived in a place that is right like it was meant to be All that we long for, made real and permanent, all of it governed, finally, by God's good law. So there will be no more evil, there will be no more tears, no more loss, no more decay of mind and body, no more dimming of eyes, and no more blunting of feelings, no more pain. We'll say, glory, I hope this never ends, and we'll say that knowing happily it's not going to. It's home in every sweet sense of the word, including especially the fact that there we will find our dad. The Lord himself will be there. Do you realize that's the last sentence of the book of Ezekiel as it looks ahead at the city that is to come? The name of the city is, the Lord is there. That's the name of the city. That's the name of the place where we're going. The Lord is there. That sums it all up. The heart of the inheritance, as he has always been. The Levites under the old covenant. And remember, Peter's going to tell us, remind us that we are a kingdom of priests. The Levites under the Old Covenant received an inheritance not just of land, but God said to them, I myself will be your inheritance, you priests. This is what David sang of in Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. On top of all that heaven holds for us, in the end, it holds the one element that makes all of that, all of the people and all of the place good. It holds God. Personal and intimate uninterrupted, never to end, undefiled, pure, never fading, never growing stale, never boring, never uninteresting, communion with the God who is, who is holy and beautiful and good and gracious, the God who is love. This is what he has in great mercy brought to us and made us heirs of. Now, no eye has seen it, and we can't ever exactly imagine it, but it's something like that. 
something marvelous for our everlasting holy joy bought for us by Jesus who surrendered himself to the loss of it all that he might raise us with him to get it all back. This is in heaven waiting for you, Christian, where the tide can't touch it, kept safe there by God for you, locked up and secured, not going anywhere, never can be, can't be touched, can't be broken, can't be undone. God keeps it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He has done this. This is the great counterweight to the reality of being exiles here in the world. Because who cares about the world? All these light and momentary troubles, yeah, sure, there there are troubles, uh uh-huh, but compared to that, they're not. There's a surpassing glory kept in heaven for you. This is the counterweight to all the heartache here, not just that of being exiles, but all the other troubles, and there are real troubles. The place is broken, the tide's coming in. But this is what we are to look at and take it to heart, Christian. This is told to us not exactly to solicit praise, but this is told to us so that we would hear it and know it and rest in it. There is something here of great privilege for us and of responsibility. There's a great privilege here that we would know this and know know where you're going, know, know what's for you. There's a great privilege and there's a responsibility to God and to the world. So I could put it to you like this. Is this that is above what you are setting your mind on? The things that are above. When Paul commands that in Colossians, he's giving us a command that's a privilege and a command that's about a responsibility. Set your your mind on things that are above. The privilege here is that that's where our joy is planted and where it grows where life is. And the responsibility part of that is that this would lead to, in our hearts, a joy that is honoring to God and that tells the truth to the world. Too often, this is convicting for me, I'm a person who lives with a glass half empty, and this is true of me. Too often, we, I, Take our cues for what to hope in from the same stuff that the world does, all the circumstances around us. And that leads us this way and that as things come and go. It, it undercuts our joy because it's, not, it's so vulnerable. But it's also failing to show the world a people who are happy in something else. And they need to see that in us if they're going to believe the message about something else worth being happy in. This is, this is beautiful and joyful and good and right. I'm not happy with it, but you would be. Doesn't work. There's a responsibility there to people around us and to the God who made us and gave it to us, and there's a privilege there for our joy. So what's your mindset on? Do you live here? Which is to say, do you live there? There is no permanent, there is no full or perfect, not till we get to heaven. 
which we will because of the next observation. Second, God is securing us for our living hope in heaven. God is securing us for our living hope in heaven. This long sentence continues on into verse 5 where it pivots from talking about the inheritance to talking about Christians and what God is doing for us. We who by God's power are being guarded. Which is not the same word as kept up in verse 4, but it's about a similar idea, protecting or keeping or guarding, similar concepts. But what we saw about the inheritance there is that it's locked up and, and stored and, and kept away like in a safe, untouchable. Here in verse 5, this guarding is an ongoing thing. It's a, it's a regular guarding, a daily, hourly guarding. For what? Well, end of the verse. Guarded for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. For salvation, it's ready. It's coming. Now, the Bible can talk about salvation really in three different ways, from three different perspectives. Past. It can look back at the salvation that has already happened. At some moment, if you're a Christian, at some moment, somewhere in the past, you trusted Christ. You became a Christian. And at that point, you were saved. You were changed, made new, and you were, you were forgiven of your sin. You were set free from the absolute power, from the bondage of sin. Born again, made new, that's all in the past. You were saved. And then also present, you are being saved all through your life, saved day by day by day as God the Holy Spirit lives in you and works out all the effects of sin, kind of kneads them out of you, matures you, grows you up, until then one day at the future, and the last day, you will be saved. Were, are being, will be. Those, those three ways you can talk about it all. So that future one, that last one, that final salvation is what verse 5 is talking about when it says the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's, it's future, it's coming. And Peter wants us to see it as near, as like very close, ready, poised, kind of like, like runners in a race at the starting line, ready to go. It's, it's upon us almost, and he wants us to think about it like that and, and see it. It is, it is about to happen that Jesus is going to come, bringing salvation with him, and when he does, we who are his will finally, fully be connected to that inheritance that's, that's kept for us, the living hope there. We will be home. A glorious day that is not yet. And until then, What's our situation? Well, still exiles, hard-pressed, clay pots, facing affliction, hardship, and decline, battling every step of the way. And kind of like any long work, any long race, I'm, I'm not a long runner, but I can imagine if I was to run a marathon somewhere around mile two, I'd begin to wonder if it's ever going to end. It would be harder if I didn't know how long the race was, too. If it's just, you know, start running and we'll tell you when to stop. That's even harder. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no, there's no finish line in sight. I don't know when it is that I'm going to die or when it is that Christ's going to come. There's, there's a long work, a long race that has no determined end. 
Run. I'll tell you when to stop. That's hard. All along this this life, we are running and battling every step of the way. Are you going to make it? Can you make it? Can you take another step for another week, for another year? Can you do it? I think probably as I ask that question, I bet a bunch of us kind of immediately respond with some sort of a, sure, of course. Maybe because we're, we're too quickly thinking ahead of the passage and we're thinking too quickly into doctrine. This is about the preservation of the saints. But if we jump to the end already and you think like, yeah, sure, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to make it. Well, that's what this passage is teaching. So you've got to kind of like wind back a little bit. Don't, don't answer the question before it's asked. But when I ask the question, maybe some of us also think like, well, sure, because it's not that hard. We haven't actually been hard-pressed enough to wonder. We don't really deal with much serious temptation or frightening persecution. It's hard to see the, the realistic possibility of turning away until you've seen something that might be awful. And you kind of have to ask, can I keep walking with God through this, if that comes to me, that is coming to me. Can I make it through that? Peter and Peter's people are shortly, I mentioned this last week, are going to shortly face a, a neurotic, I mean, literally an insane emperor who burned Christians. And then they're going to face a widespread empire persecution of Christians if you're the next day going to be thrown into the Colosseum and face a lion, would you make it? Would you disavow this? We're not there. Some people are. And maybe some will be. If not, bless the Lord. That hits good news if we're not, because those things are awful. But maybe you haven't faced enough to, to actually ask this question honestly. Or maybe you're, you're very sure that you have a, a, a deep, extreme conviction that you will not turn away like Peter himself one time declared. But whatever the case, the question is here raised. Will you make it? There is a glorious treasure, an inheritance kept in heaven for you that you're not there yet. Will you make it? We're just people, and stuff happens, fear sets in, challenges come. Verse 5 says, yes. You will. By God's power, you will get there. He guards you. He preserves you safe from every attack and from every temptation that otherwise would keep you from reaching the salvation safely, would keep you from reaching the inheritance. His power does this. God guarantees my and your future salvation just the way he guarantees that there will be something marvelous there to be saved too. 
A true living hope is kept there, guarded for us, and we are kept guarded, escorted home as God, so to speak, rides shotgun on our lives and makes sure we arrive safely. But exactly what is this guarding about? What's it like? How does he do that? Obviously, it's not the type of guarding that keeps us from being attacked and tempted altogether. This is on the one hand obvious, but on another sense kind of worth pointing out because I sometimes talk to Christians who feel like they face some sort of attack, some sort of temptation, and then it gets different and they feel like, whoa, this change, maybe God has kind of let go of me. Or maybe I've departed from him because this kind of temptation is, oh boy. Maybe I even failed in some of the temptations. The attacks are double, triple intense. That's not what I've been used to for life. And they kind of feel, the Christian kind of feels like, if I'm attacked and tempted in this way, and maybe even fail in this way, that's a bad sign. Probably evidence that God is not keeping me. Let's just be clear. The presence of attacks, temptation, and sin that fails is not evidence that God's not keeping me. Christians are persecuted all the time. Peter, for a time, said, I don't even know Jesus. Never heard the guy. So the, the, the protecting, the guarding of God is not keeping us from attack, not keeping us from temptation, even failing at times in temptation. So what is it? Well, there's a clue in the language. Guarded by God's power, it says, through faith. God's power does the guarding through faith, which is very much something in us, which is maybe a bit confusing. So let's, let's think about this a little bit here this week, though it's going to come up again next week. We can put it like this, perhaps. God does something very similar with all these three perspectives of salvation. Past, present, and future. God does something very similar in all those three perspectives. With regard to our past, and also the same way present and future, God's power creates, stirs up, activates, and strengthens our faith. Creates, stirs up, activates, strengthens our faith. The faith that is needed for each of us to be saved. To be saved, to grow, be saved progressively, and to be saved at the end. Faith that's critical, it has to be in us. A faith that, that puts us in Christ, a faith that keeps us safe from attacks all along the way. Because if you think into the attacks all along the way, what's going on in every attack is a common angle. From coming at, from different sides, there's, there's a common spot there they're trying to all get to, all these attacks. Temptations work one way, luring, kind of inviting us, and just the blunt force of hardship and attack is, is just a pain and a fright. But all of them are trying to get at the spot where we begin to say, 
God is not right. The perspectives and the offers and the views of the world are right. This is better to go, to go with the world. I don't think actually God's good. I think God has abandoned me. I think sin has more to reward me. The world is correct. All of it's working in a different way, an attack, a temptation, all trying to come to this spot of saying, I am going to depart from God. In other words, it's all aiming at creating unbelief in the, in the Christian. And if that were to succeed, that's a problem because there are no unbelievers in heaven. There are no unbelievers who are saved at the end. No unbelievers inherit this living hope. We must believe all the way to the end if you want to be saved at the end. Your faith is critical. And God generates it in great power, guarding you. How does he do that? Well, again, there's a little more about this in next week's passage, but as a teaser, let me paraphrase an illustration that Charles Spurgeon used a long time ago. Suppose I have a small glass bottle in my hand, a little small glass bottle here, and in it is a lethal poison for humans. It has other uses. It's good for other things, but it's 100% fatal to any person who drinks it. And I hand you this bottle. I want you to have it. There's purposes in your life. But I don't want you to drink it and die. How do I use my power to keep you, to guard you from drinking it? What would I do? I'd first label the bottle clearly. Poison, fatal. And then I'd tell you clearly and repeatedly, I'd warn you, drink this and you will die. And then I would prove myself in all of the other times and moments of our experience together, in, in the wide range of our relationship, I would prove myself to be honest and loving and very much for you in any and in every way. And you would see me and know me and trust my words and hear them and see them. Be warned and you would not drink that poison. You wouldn't. You trust me. You'd have faith. God in power guards you, Christian, similarly. By in power, activating, stirring up in you trust of him. How? By labeling clearly what is dangerous and telling you repeatedly, this is fatal, don't go there. And by in every other aspect of all of his interaction with you, opening your eyes to see him as good, gracious, and for you. Truthful. Out for your good, out for your life. And you would see him as good, and you would believe him as trustworthy, particularly as you look at one who he abandoned on the cross to give you life. He wouldn't do that if he meant to take life from you. 
You'd see him as trustworthy and you believe him. Day after day after day, all the way until the end time when the salvation that is meant for you comes and you receive your reward. This is the work of God for you. To guard in heaven an inheritance and to guard you for the inheritance. He has done it start to finish. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.